Well, good morning. I'm going to say it's a, a blessing to be able to speak to you again. I know when Pastor retired, uh, it was it was shocking to me at least. Uh, my wife was telling me for months, she's like, his grandkids are in Georgia, he's retiring. And uh, I was like, no. And then he read the letter, and even when he started, I thought, well, this is a missionary. And uh, But when he retired, and uh, we knew there'd be space is open in the summer. I was hoping, praying the Lord would give me the opportunity to be able to speak again, and I want to thank you all as well for being willing to to put up with it. Uh, it's a great blessing and a privilege to be able to open the Word of God. As we come this morning to the Word, if you've got your Bibles, go back to Galatians chapter 4. Go back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. As you're turning Uh, The title, as you may have seen on the marquee out front or in your bulletin, uh, is What's the Point? Have you ever been at a place in life where you've asked yourself that question? What's the point? As a sports fan, I've done it many times. All right, with different teams that I follow that break my heart. Uh, As a teacher, I do it every time I give a test and then grade them. What's the point? Sometimes we get up in the mornings and we're facing another day of, of work and, and we can't see all ends. And, and you ask yourself that question, what's the point? You watched the news this last week. If you're a, a little bit cynical, pessimistic as I am, you might look at the FBI and what went on and say, what's the point? Corruption seems, at least, at the highest level. You see other things, the, the situation in Dallas and other just sort of crazy things going on across the country. And it seems as though all of the programs have failed, all of the, the educational things that we've tried to do, all the progress, progress that's been made have failed. What's the point? I want you to understand this morning, sort of right at the outset, that there is a point. As you come to Galatians, I'll give you some background to this book. Paul, the author, probably wrote this somewhere around AD 48-49. He's writing not just to, to one church, but to a section of churches in the south of Asia Minor. This epistle would have spread to many churches. And he's writing to combat a heresy, and the heresy was that it's Jesus plus the law. That's kind of his key thing, that, that you need Christ plus the Mosaic Law to please God, to secure your salvation, to grow in the faith, whatever the case may be. But it's Jesus plus the Law. And Paul's writing to correct that. We say it's probably eighty forty eight forty nine because the book of Acts talks about a thing called the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, they settled this, that it's Jesus alone, Jesus by faith. And the fact that Paul doesn't reference the Jerusalem Council despite the fact that he was there means that he probably wrote Galatians before that council took place. But he's wanting to focus on the burden of the law and the freedom that Christ gives from the demands of the law. And it's not that Paul is espousing some kind of libertarian Christian belief that, that is, if you know Jesus, you can just go out and live like the devil if you want because, hey, Jesus paid it all. But it's the exact opposite. He's saying, look, Jesus has saved you. He has granted you freedom to live a life in Him. He has given you His Spirit, His power, to live a life pleasing to Him. But it's not through the power of the law. 
but through the power of Christ because of the redemption and the adoption into the family of God. That is, the change in the Christian because of Jesus should be revealed in our thoughts and our actions such that we are different people after Christ than we were before. Our lifestyle should change. So as we look at Galatians 4, 1 through 7, verse 1, it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, in those first three verses, Paul is is going back and he's setting the stage. He's saying, look, you know, talking in the Roman world, he says, you know that even for those on in, in the estate, that when they have sons, that the father sets a time, a rite of passage, when that son is no longer just a son, but becomes sort of an heir to the estate. That they will go before the law, the son will take on the name of the father, and he'll be able to do business in the name of his father. And he's saying there, but before that time comes, that son is under masters. He is basically a slave in the household. He, he, isn't, he doesn't have his own freedom. He can't do what he wants to do. He is under masters, school teachers. And he's saying, you in the same way in verse 3, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He's saying before Jesus came, he's talking to Gentiles, not to Jews. He's saying before Jesus came, you were under the elementary principles of the world. You were under all the the superstitions and the pagan religions and all the the ways of men. That's how you tried to handle things. That's how you tried to live life. That was the worldview that you went out. Look, you need to understand our world today, even in the church today, there's a lot of folks that still live under the elementary principles of the world. They don't turn to Christ when there's a problem. They turn to, to alcohol or drugs or bitterness. They don't turn to Christ. They turn to friends to gossip, to division. They don't turn to Christ. They turn to what the world says they ought to do. The elementary principles of the world. But in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Those are two verses that are extremely powerful and packed. What Paul is saying is that, look, when the fullness of time had come, this this part of verse 4, it's an amazing phrase, it's an amazing idea that you were an elementary principle, but when the fullness of time had come, God sends his son. Do you know that God worked all of history out for the coming of Christ? That in this most part, as far as what's the point? The point was that Jesus is going to come. That was the point to history. Now, it started before time. I, I, as I was preparing and studying for this, I was thinking to myself, when did God decide to do that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? When does an unchangeable God, eternal God, decide to do something? He's, he always knew. It was always there. Before he created in eternity past that the sun was going to come. So from the moment in Genesis 1-1, in the beginnings God created, or in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, from that time, all of history was being planned for the coming of the sun. He organized all of it. Did he use the free choices of men to do so? Absolutely. Was he sovereign in it? Absolutely. And that's as far as I'm going on that particular point. 
But God was the author. He works through hundreds, thousands of years, tens of thousands of lives and events to prepare just the right time for the sun to come. You know, nothing in history has ever caught God off guard. Nothing ever surprised him. He was not watching the FBI news conference and and then choking on his lunch because of what was said. He knew. He's always known. There was nothing that occurred this week In prior weeks, there's nothing that will occur in the coming weeks that he doesn't already know. That he hasn't worked out in some way, shape, or form to accomplish his purpose. In Genesis 3.15, he gives the the proto-evangelium. The idea that the serpent's head is going to be crushed. That the woman will give birth to a, a, a child. And this child will be for the redemption, ultimately, of men. He calls out Abraham in Genesis finds one man amidst all the nations, one man who will fear him, one man who will honor him, and from that man builds a nation. You have the patriarchs then, and all of their imperfection, and he uses them. He sends Joseph to Egypt, builds his people there, even using the slavery in Egypt for his purposes. Works through Israel and all of their many faults, through Moses and the law. Even works through Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. I love Nebuchadnezzar. He's one of my favorite characters in scripture and if there's hope for Nebuchadnezzar there is hope for for any politician on earth but he works through Babylon a pagan culture a pagan society and God uses them for his will he uses Alexander the greatest I know I think I've, I've mentioned it in sermons before but Alexander comes and he conquers the known world before he's 30 what have you done before 30 that used to depress me when I was 22 and like this guy conquered the known world I graduated from college. It's not the same. All right, conquers the known world, spreads Greek culture, the Hellenization of the world. Everybody speaks Greek. When his empire falls and Rome eventually arises, when that fullness of time had come, you had a one empire with one language, one currency, one road system, the peace of Rome. God worked it out. Why? For his purpose, his will. I want you to understand, he's still working. He's still on the throne today. Look, I believe you ought to vote and be involved and find your candidate and vote biblically. But I will tell you in November, it will be the will of God that's done. For good or ill, it will be the will of God that's done. Now we sometimes, we, we pray for revival. We want the Lord to do a work in our hearts. Do you know if you look in church history, when he has most often done works in the church is when the church is being persecuted? So whatever comes, it will come out of his will. But I want you to understand as well, it's not just on the grand epic national scale that he works. He works on the personal level as well, on our level, in our history. You read the book of Esther. What does Mordecai tell Esther? Who knows but whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Look, you can do this in the will of God and he will use you or he will find someone else. But the will of God will be done. David and Goliath, the lion and the bear. David and Goliath, I love this story. I know we've had it in Sunday school in the last couple of weeks. And I've heard preachers all the time say, well, David, you know, he was just a shepherd boy. He didn't know anything. And you're like, did you not read where he's talking to Saul? And he's like, I killed a lion and a bear with a club. Have, have you ever done that? Oh, most of us, if you're going to kill a lion or a bear, you're using a high-powered hunting rifle. You're not taking a club. David, as a shepherd boy, says, Saul, I was watching the sheep, and a lion came, and I grabbed him by the beard. Do you know how close you have to be to grab a lion by the beard? 
and I killed him with a club. I smashed his head in. Then a bear came. I don't know how big the bear was. I know that, that some of the, the, the ancient bears, if you will, were fairly large. It's not Yogi. And he says, I grabbed him, and I killed him with a club. That Philistine will be no different. I got to tell you, if you've, if you've stared down a lion and a bear, an eight-foot-tall, nine-foot-tall man, you're probably like, yeah, no worries. Now, it doesn't mean that David didn't trust the Lord. Exact opposite. What David understood, though, was that God prepared him for that moment. That God had ordered the events in his life for that time. You see, he does the same for us. He prepares you for what he wants you to do. He orders your life in such a way, even when you can't see it, for what he wants you to do. You are a product of history. You're not an accident. You're here by the will of God. You're here this morning by the will of God. You exist. You have the parents that you have, the friends that you have, the experiences, for good or ill. Yes, we've sinned. Yes, we've made mistakes. Yes, there's been heartache and there's scars and there's bruises and all those things. But I want you to understand that God is using it in His plan to perfect you, to bring you to fullness in Christ. There's a reason that you're here. I know in my own history coming from Oklahoma, there's not a lot out there. You don't get to Oklahoma by accident. It's, it's one of those states you have to want to go there. Okay? In my case, my hometown, it's because there was a cattle trail that some cowboys in Texas decided, hey, we're going to sell our cows up in Kansas, and this is the route we're going to take. And then the U.S. military decided we're going to build a fort at Fort Arbuckle, and we're going to build a fort at Fort Sill, and those two, that, that cattle trail and that fort trail are going to interact, and a man named Jim Duncan from Scotland decided to build a general store there. And that store got built, and then other people came, and businesses started, and my grandparents ended up living within three-quarters of a mile from each other so that my parents went to elementary school and met and got married and decided to have at least two kids. And I'm here, and any number of things could have changed, and I wouldn't be here. That trails off maybe five, ten miles. Military doesn't build a fort there. My parents decide they really don't like each other in elementary school. Dad pulls her pigtails one time too many. Whatever the case, but God works. Whatever your history, whatever your family background, God worked it so that you would be here today. He worked it so that his will would be accomplished in your life. You are not an accident. Your experiences aren't an accident. And he wants to use you, and he is preparing you for this modern age. Like Esther, you are here in this country at this time for such a time as this. All right, Not just, again, the national level, but when the fullness of time had come. God was always working. He's always planning. And his will will not be thwarted. But as you move on in verse 4, <clears throat> what's he do? God sent forth his son. When the time was right, God sent forth his son. I see this as a military guy. I see this like in all the movies. It's sort of like when the champion takes the battlefield. All right, this is, for me in history, the turning of the tide. Now, yeah, you may look around the world today and say, well, it doesn't look like the tide is turning. It looks like evil's won. Evil's already lost, and it lost on the cross. It lost at the resurrection. It's done. All Satan is doing is fighting what we in the military would call a retreating action. He's just trying to, to save as much face as he can before his ultimate doom comes. He's trying to create as much damage as he can before his ultimate time is over. 
for time, his time is ultimately over. But this is the turning of the tide. The sun comes. Now, it's important why, because how Paul puts it. He comes, he is sent, he is not created. You understand, Jesus was not a created being. It's a heresy spread by some today, but in some in Paul's day, but he is sent. That is, he is eternal. And Paul is, in just in, in this phrase alone, he is revealing or sort of implying the eternality of Christ. Jesus was always there. Always has been, because the Son was sent. He is also implying, again, the, the divinity of Christ. That the Son, who is eternal, was divine. All right, as John points out in his gospel, we won't turn there, but in verses 1, 1 through 5, and 14 through 18, that Jesus is eternal, that the Son was with God in the beginning, and he abided or, or lived with God. All right, this triune. The idea that he is the Son also indicates at least two individuals in the Godhead, the Father and the Son. All right, in the phrase... And then ultimately the mission of Christ. Why does the Son come? He comes to redeem mankind. We talked about this morning. Pastor Luke mentioned it. The songs talked about it. He comes to redeem. You understand that from the moment he was born, as he understood his mission, his his life was leading him to the cross. He didn't come just to provide a great moral example about how we should live. He didn't come to write the one verse everybody knows, judge not lest you be judged. All right? He came to go to the cross. Imagine knowing your whole life that your life is going to end in your, in your early 30s and it's going to end horrifically at the crucifixion after being tortured and mocked and you're dying for people who hate you. And that is the scope and goal of your life. That's why you're here. That's why Christ came to redeem men. In Mark two thirteen through 17, it's a great passage. Scripture says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You look at that last phrase, or lose that last phrase. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So why is the son sent? Why does the son come? to call not the righteous, but sinners. You know, the truth of the gospel is not that it's for good people. It's not. If you're good today, if if you're in and of yourself holy, Jesus can't help you. He came to call sinners. He came to call those who cannot save themselves, who cannot help themselves, who cannot do of themselves, uh, find forgiveness from God. He came not to call righteous but sinners, and it's an interesting thing. Who is he eating with? Who are he and the disciples? Tax collectors and sinners. You know, it's an easy thing for us as Christians to surround ourselves with other Christians. It's not so easy to surround ourselves sometimes, as Jesus does with tax collectors, if you will. Not that you need to go find IRS agents and invite them out to lunch, but tax collectors and sinners. Very often, we spend as much of our time trying to isolate ourselves. 
Look, as the Son was sent, I want you to understand, so are Christians sent. Do you know that you're still, look, when Jesus saved you, could he take you immediately to heaven? Yeah. Did he? No. So why? What's the point? The point is that you need to be an ambassador for Christ. That you have a personal responsibility to spread the gospel. Not just with how you live. Should it be in how you live? Absolutely, that's a given. But it sometimes means verbal communication. That you should be telling others about the Son who came and died for you. What the world needs today are Christians who really believe it. Who really believe that Jesus didn't just come to to give them the American dream. But that Jesus comes to offer redemption to mankind. That he comes to call not just the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repent. He came to bear our chastisement, to die to forgive us. Isaiah 53, a powerful Old Testament passage on why he would come. He came to die. It's why the cross, or why the gospels rather, focus so much on the last week of his life, so much on the cross, so much on his death, his resurrection. You know, the gospel of Mark alone, 36% of it is focused on his last week. From Mark 8.31 on, Jesus is on his way to the crucifixion. John says that, look, Jesus did a lot of things, and he said a lot of things, but I've written what I've written that you might know him and that you might have life in his name. There's more they could have written, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their focus is Jesus came to die for you. Now take this message and go tell others. Let the world know what our world again needs is the gospel. We are, we're sick. Our culture's sick. This world is sick. It needs the sun. I can tell you, it's not going to matter who the president is come November if we're not given the gospel. It won't. It's not going to matter who controls Washington, D.C. if Christians continue not giving the gospel. It won't. Conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, big government, small government, if they don't know Christ, what's the point? What's been gained? You know, Dallas isn't on fire, so to speak, because of who the politicians are. Dallas is on fire because there's a lack of the gospel. The nation is not at war with itself simply because of political policy and social ideology. It's at war with itself because the gospel is not going forth. Because people don't know Jesus. And because we're not telling them. You think about the mission field. Not just here in the United States, but around the world. And how many of our young people now are going out. I've not looked at the statistics recently, but I know it's grim. There's something along the lines of for every seven that are retiring, there's one taking their place. That missions, at least out of the United States, is failing. That we're losing missionaries at a heartbreaking rate. The world, again, needs Christians who really believe it, who have the conviction of sincere belief. It's one of the things that that challenges me. I've talked to some of the guys working with maintenance this summer, trying to learn some things um, at the request of my wife. Uh, <laughs> I, I tease her for it. So that I tell, and I tell maintenance guys, look, this is just practice. When, when the summer ends is when my real work will begin at the house. Um, but in talking throughout the summer and, and 
it's one of the things that I, I love about the chaplain corps, is that can I take the gospel, can I take Christ and apply it to the battlefield? Can I help that soldier who's just lost his legs understand that there's still a point, that there's still hope? Can I take the gospel out of the comfort of an air-conditioned room with pews and and gray lighting? Can I take it out there into the harsh sunlight of the world or into the darkest nights of the soul and have them understand that he's real, that it matters, that I believe this, and that it should change your life if you believe it as well? That Christ makes a difference. He came. He sent what? To redeem. He was born. Paul goes on. He was born. uh, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Born of woman. In this phrase, this third phrase, he's hinting or he's appealing to the humanity of Christ. He was born into a human body. He was sent by God, born of a woman, fully human, without sin. And as then a man, as a member of the flesh, so to speak, without sin, he can fulfill the demands of the law. He can be the sacrifice that mankind needs because he is in the flesh and yet not of the flesh. It's the shedding of his pure blood, of this divine blood, as we've sang about this morning, that makes redemption possible. His blood washes away the sin. It's one of the important doctrines through, uh, that you find throughout the New Testament. It's why in the Old Testament they sacrifice animals. And you may sit there and say, well, that sounds gory, it sounds nasty. No, 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 far from that. Blood was sacred. It's why he tells Israel, don't eat flesh with the blood in it. That blood contains life. And so when they would sacrifice an animal, it was a holy thing. It was a a sacramental thing, so to speak, the shedding of that animal's blood. And when Christ goes to the cross and he sheds his pure blood for the sins of humanity, it's a holy thing and it's a sacred thing. And only his blood as man and as God could do it. Paul is also speaking here to the virgin birth. There's no mention of a father as he writes, he says, look, he was born of a woman. He doesn't say he was born of man and woman. He doesn't say he was born of man. In a society that was dominated by the patriarchy, it is an odd thing that Paul would not allude to Jesus' father if he was not virgin born. But he is. The virgin birth matters. Why? Because, again, it points to that sinless nature of Christ, the fact that he was God and that he was man. So he was born of woman. For there he was born under the law. What's this mean? It means that Christ came to fulfill the law. He was born the way he ought to have been born. He satisfies then in his birth and his life the demands of the law. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. You can turn there with me if you will. And I know it's long, but I'm going to read the passage. The most important thing is Scripture. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those, or even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. You understand what Paul's saying? That in Adam all men died. 
That in Adam this sin was communicated. It's the reason that every person on earth, born of man and woman, is born with sin. It's the reason we all have a problem, whether we acknowledge it or not. And we may spend our time and money on other areas and other avenues to try to figure it out, but the problem is sin. The problem in the United States is sin. The problem around the world is sin. And it comes from Adam. And Paul's saying, if, if by this one man all of these trespasses come, how much greater than by the man who came, who offered himself. And in his death, he makes a way of forgiveness for those trespasses. A way of justification, as he puts it. The free gift of righteousness uh, reign in life. The righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. So he's born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So that we might be forgiven, that he might satisfy the fulfillment of the law, that is, in Adam all men died, that in Christ all men might be made alive. Again, the gospel is for everybody. It's for all people around the world at all times and all places. And whatever it is that may have occurred in your life, the gospel's for you. Whatever you may have done, the gospel's for you. I, we talk about this in class sometimes. You know, one of the more astounding things about Christ and about Scripture is if that before he committed suicide, if Adolf Hitler had bent the knee, bowed the head, confessed his sin to Christ, he would have been freely forgiven. He would have been washed clean. And you'd see Hitler in heaven. Why? Because of the power of the cross. Because of the power of the blood. Don't ever think that your sin or someone else's sin is more powerful than the shed blood of Christ and the the forgiveness that he offers through Calvary. So why does he come then? The fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. As I've already mentioned, what's your problem today? Is that you're under the law. You're under the curse of sin. That you dwell in sinful flesh. You may not like to admit it, but it's true. If I were to bring your parents in here and they're honest, they're going to tell you. Your problem is sin. You disobey, you talk back, whatever the case. I say that, you know, with parents because it's easy, but look, for some of us, you can bring your friends in here. They say, yeah, they're kind of a jerk sometimes. Why? Because of sin. Why is it that we want to do our own thing? Why is it that we get so miserable? Why is it, you know, when we're shopping here, especially, you know, South Florida, there's people everywhere, all right? And you're shopping or we're driving or we're doing whatever, and we get angry at somebody because of their sin and then our sin. It's because we're sinners. That's the problem. So he comes to redeem man. It's an amazing phrase. All right? The word agorazo is the word that's translated here for redemption. It means to to lead out, to buy back. What Paul is saying is that you, you were living, in a sense, in the slave market of sin. That you were a slave to sin. That you were in that market bought and sold by sin. That sin dominated your life. But when redemption comes, when he redeems you, he is buying you out of that market. He is leading you out of that market of sin, never to be sold again. That in redemption, you are no longer under the curse of sin. But that, you, that he might redeem you and to lead you out. That you have gained freedom, as he puts it in Galatians Five one for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Here's the deal, Christian. You've been redeemed. Why then do we so often go back to the slave market of sin? 
Why do we so often go back and think it's going to be better this time? It'll be different this time. I talk, having taught for many years, I tell my, my students, you'd be amazed at how many, even, even now, and some of them I follow on Facebook, how many times I've had students who think, I'll be the exception to the rule. And they're not. I want you to understand, in some things in life, there are no exceptions to the rule. There aren't. But we go back to the slave market of sin and we think again, I'll control it this time. I've got it this time. This time it'll satisfy what I need. And it never does. It doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation or that you could give up your salvation. From Christ's standpoint, you're redeemed. It was all Him. But it doesn't mean that you don't go back and toy with those things that you think satisfy. Go back to the elementary principles of the world. You've been set free in Christ. So live in that freedom. To redeem men. And then as he goes on, what is then with redemption? Not just redeemed. God doesn't just save you, pull you from the slave market. Look, he doesn't have to do that. But he does that and then he goes a step beyond that. He adopts you as sons and daughters. Why? So that we might receive adoption. Again, to redeem those who are under the law in verse 5. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you understand that you've been brought into the family of God? That he doesn't hold you at arm's length. That you're not an enemy of God anymore. If you've trusted Christ, he's brought you into the family. That when you bear the title Christian, it's not just a a statement of the philosophy that you follow, but it's a statement of the family that you belong to. And if you claim that name Christian, then honor the family. Bear the family's name in honor and freedom. You are adopted, given all the privileges of sons and daughters of the king. As you've heard before, I'm sure, in verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of our son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that the term Abba there is a term of familiarity, intimacy. It's a term that children would have used to refer to their fathers in the Aramaic, Abba, Daddy that you can call him, that you can refer to him as daddy. You understand there's no other religion on earth that offers such familiarity with an almighty, all-powerful, all-holy God. That you can go before him at all times, and he's your daddy. That regardless of what you've done, Christian, even if you've gone sort of back into the slave market of sin, he's still your father. That he still loves you unconditionally. He's still daddy. And it's the Spirit that communicates it again. One of the powerful things about the passage in verse 6, that God has sent the Spirit of His Son. So what Paul's done in verses 4 through 7 in particular, is he's pointed out the Son's divine, the Father's divine, and the Spirit's divine. And now you have the full working of the Trinity in salvation. That the Spirit has sealed you, that the Spirit dwells within you, that as adopted children of the King, You've been given the Holy Spirit from power, on on, from power on high. Why? To glorify Him. To know Him. To serve Him. To go and make disciples. So that you don't have to say, God, you haven't given me the tools I need to get it done. But He has. He dwells with you. He goes with you. But I think the problem for many of us today is that we ignore that. Right? I tell you, the, the Spirit's dwelling with you. But it's not reflected in our prayer life. It's not reflected in our study of Scripture. It's not reflected in our boldness. The Spirit dwells within and goes with you that you might glorify Him. How best 
You know, I, I understand the old saying that, that the, in a sense, the point or the meaning of life is to know God and glorify Him together, or to, to glorify Him forever. Look, you cannot glorify that which you don't know. And you could have trusted Christ as your Savior, but if you're not studying Scripture, you don't know Him. I was reading yesterday, partially in preparation for this, and came across a quote from John Calvin. And the way he put it was this, that only obedience leads to knowledge of God. Only obedience leads to knowledge of God. Those Christians who are disobedient to the Word, they don't study the Word, they don't have a prayer life. And, and look, this is not putting you under the law at all. This is saying if you know Christ, you ought to want to know Christ. If you believe he's your father, you will talk to him. I've got a son, 11 years old. He's not always happy with me. He still talks to me, though. Rarely does he ignore me. All right, sometimes. All right, but rarely, even when he's angry. Why? I'm his father. And yet we have Christians wandering across the country. I know Jesus. When's the last time you studied a book of the Bible? Well, you know, in our small group, we're doing, no, 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 no. When's the last time that you opened up your Bible and personally sat down and did a study? When's the last time you read it? Well, you can't read the whole book. Yes, you can. When's the last time you spent time in prayer before the Father? Well, you know, life's busy. Yep. Okay. Do you tell your family? Hopefully you don't tell your family that. Look, can't talk to you. Too busy. Family won't last long. The Father wants to know or wants to hear your prayers. And it's through that obedience that we come to know him and to know more about him, to be able to glorify him. So again, what's the point? Philippians 1.21 For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know the point this morning? The point to all of history is the redemption of mankind. Nothing else matters. It's why Christ says in the Gospels, what, are you, what have you gained if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? What does this world matter? Look, what, what's it matter if we gain the White House and, and, and the politicians that you want get in there and they pass all the policies that you want? What does it matter if you gain all of that and America still loses its soul? If the United States still sends folks at an alarming rate to hell? see, the point today is that God came to redeem men and that those of us who are here, Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That you are here, that your point is to glorify Christ, to make him known, to tell others about Jesus, to be a witness, a light in a dark world. And if, again, this world needs anything right now, it's for Christians to stand up and to be light. Not just to take a strong stand on social issues and political issues, but to communicate the love of Christ, the redemption of mankind, and his adoption beyond that. So you have a point today. Your life, your job, God has put you in the place where he wants you. He has formed you, crafted you, and put you where he wants you so that you can serve his point in the redemption of mankind. That's, a, that's an amazing thing. Because now you're working for eternity's sake and not just for a bank account. And that's amazing. Let's pray. I'll turn it over to Pastor Steve, Pastor Luke. Father in heaven, we thank you.
Thank you for the opportunity to be gathered around your word for what's recorded there. We thank you that you work in history, that when time had come, that you sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law and to adopt us. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. We ask that you'd be with those here in the congregation this morning, maybe those who don't know you as Savior, who've never bent the knee, bowed the head. We ask that you'd work in their hearts, their lives, show them their need of a Savior, that you'd be with those here who are Christians that we might understand our point. Lord, that you'd guide in our lives to show us those folks that you'd have us to witness to, what your, what your mission field for us is, and that we'd be obedient, willing followers. We thank you again for your love, your mercy, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.